This is a bonus episode. We interview Bill Dowser, a principal of Australian architectural practice BVN. Bill's been involved in design and direction for numerous award-winning projects, ranging from public, educational and cultural buildings to commercial work. Reply is his latest endeavour. The idea for Reply came as New York communities have experienced a spring of discontent. The COVID-19 virus, the murder of George Floyd and the resulting protests and then mass lootings have resulted in thousands of plywood panels being put in place all around the city to protect businesses. It wasn't long before they were covered in graffiti and then street art. Now that stores are reopening and the panels are coming down, Bill's assembled a team to upcycle the plywood barricades into street furniture kits to sell to the reopening local restaurants and bars. He's donating part of the proceeds to Children of Promise, a New York charity to support children of incarcerated parents and empower them to break the cycle of intergenerational involvement in the criminal justice system. Bill and his team are seeking sponsors to subsidise the cost of the furniture to local restaurants. So if you know someone or you know business or someone interested to be a sponsor, follow the link in the show notes or just go to reply.org. That's re-ply.org. So, Bill, let's talk about the work you're doing at the moment in relation to what we're we're experiencing here in the city in New York and across the country with as a result of the uh, the protests that have happened in the wake of the George Floyd murder and the catalogue of incidents that have been happening in the build up to this and and I suppose we have to put it in the context of the broader COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown that we've seen, obviously, sort of shops shut and bordered with plywood and in in the face of the uh, the lootings, the violence and the amazing upsurge in graffiti that's covering these these boards. You've got a great idea, I believe, called Reply uh, that you've launched with some partners. And maybe we could talk about that and the work you're doing and the social purpose behind it. But maybe before you do, you could just give us a bit of context into terms of the work you do outside of Reply. Yeah, sure, Mark. It's interesting to me too, being in New York as well, as obviously an Australian, which my accent might give away. But BVN, our practice is is an Australian architectural practice. So we've been set up as a very small design studio here in New York. And for the last five years, and and that's really been looking at, at sort of thinking about space differently, thinking about how you can actually sort of um, change the sort of the setup of, of fit out and things like that. And sort of just trying to sort of look at how you redesign the whole system of delivery in terms of in terms of a lot of space design. And then that this whole time of the COVID lockdown has actually meant such a reflection point in a way. And for me personally, the idea is that the importance of connection and connection with people. So the the important things in my life have actually been my walking, my walking buddies, and that that really is that, that opportunity to walk through the city every day of the week and and just see the differences over the last three months, and and, and almost to get a temperature check of the city and and the impact of, of COVID, firstly, and then you know now you know in terms of the George Floyd murder, is that how that has actually impacted you know, the activism within the city. It's been an incredible experience to just take time to actually observe and, and listen and understand what the vibe is in the city. And that took us to the plywood. What was your feeling like having the, on the transformation of the city af, in the immediate aftermath of the lockdown and doing these daily walks? Eerie, eerie, an eerie quietness. It was quite an extraordinary 
quietness to have a city like this stop and, you know, the opportunity of being able to sort of walk through the streets at 6 o'clock in the evening or 7 o'clock in the evening and, and you know, you're really the only people in the streets is a kind of unique experience, which one of my friends recounted the, the sort of aftermath of 9-11 and, and the, he didn't actually take the time to appreciate what it was like in the city in a different, in a different mode, especially in a city... You know, New York is built on a culture of congestion. New York is actually a, a thriving city that, that, that is all about noise and activity and life. And to suddenly see streets without life is quite a, an amazing experience. To be the only people walking through Times Square is a, is a kind of unique experience. And sobering, sobering. I did wonder on quite a few occasions in, let's say, mid to late March when I was going out I would normally be out running, but I was had an injury, so I was out cycling. And I was cycling through the city in completely deserted streets. So I did wonder if where everyone else was. I mean, obviously it's a lockdown, people are staying in, but you still have to go out. So I, I wasn't surprised that there weren't cars, but I, I was surprised that there weren't people out walking, getting fresh air. It really was a complete lockdown. And it was one of the most bizarre situations to be able to, for example, cycle over the... Um, the bridge at Grand Central Station and see the whole of Park Avenue in front of you empty and deserted. And I think it was something we should, we'll, we'll as you say, after 9-11, that person that didn't take advantage of it, there has been something utterly magical about the silence and the slumber of the city. <laughs> and then you do start to see the life of the city too, because you don't start to see the homelessness. You know, you start to sort of see the real sort of the real edge of you know, the impact of COVID, the impact of people losing jobs, the impact of all of those sorts of things, you start to see sort of people on the street, growing numbers of people living on the street. That's been an issue, is an issue, ongoing issue for the city. So it's really, it was all of that change, but you could, it's more, it's not even just it was visual, you could feel. The feel was actually the, the sort of thing that was so strong. And then I think... I think people have actually got more comfortable with the idea of walking. So you, know, you can see the stream of people picking up over time as people are starting to become more comfortable with the idea that, yes, you can, can walk. I mean, I luckily had the dog, so I had to, had to actually keep the dog walking, but I don't think she's walked quite as much in her life as we have in the last three months. Mm-hmm. So what's something um, on reference to 9-11, uh, which is a very important factor because I was here and I lived through the whole episode, the very big difference, the, the two fundamental differences between that and this thing. So I don't sure if I want to compare it. First of all, half of the city was locked up, so you could not go past 14th Street all the way down to Tribeca. You could not access, no one could. And secondly, it was only maybe two weeks, three weeks that that was blocked up, and now we're going into the third month. So... There's definitely a fundamental difference of movement, of freedom of movement, and also the presence of what had happened in 9-11 was much bigger mm-hmm. because the smell, that constant smell and the burning of the building still and, and the, the trucks that were going back and forth the entire time for, you know, six months to come, that was much more obvious. And to your point, Bill, I think now it's just that quietness is such much more beautiful in a way. Except the quietness was always pierced by an ambulance here. You know, there was always 
there was always a siren sound that would, would, would yeah. silence, which sort of reminded you very much of the situation that was happening. And then, you know, the other thing is that, um, you know, which is a, a pretty macabre thing, but the idea of when you're walking past some of the hospital buildings, you know, the white trucks that were parked out the front, which were the, you know, which which were obviously being used for temporary morgues, was also another really, really in your face kind of message. Or a message was actually just the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. No, totally. A couple of times I passed hospitals near here in Williamsburg, and it was actually quite a shock to see what you knew was a mobile morgue, and it was just, it was, yeah. yeah. So maybe you could talk to us about walking through the streets in the aftermath of the, the plywood going up and how this idea emerged? Well, I think, you know, on you know, the, the sort of George Floyd murder and then the activism within the streets and then the, the activity around, you know, the sort of the protests and the marches and, and then, you know, the, the looting and the things that happened, you know, happened in parallel uh, with that went, meant that the city in virtually two days became a boarded up, barricaded ground floor. Like sing, you know, the first level of every building became this, this closure, which kind of bizarre. So that you actually had, you know, you've, you've changed the urban landscape instantly from shop fronts to, to this blank plywood that is actually running streets after street after street. And, and it was... I mean, it's almost like a, a sort of military effort, the way that it came in and was put up. Contractors arrived everywhere in the city. You just saw it happen within the sort of two or three-day window. And it, it again, then trans- it actually then killed the life of the city because it actually takes away, it, it took away the sort of whole sort of permeability and, and views into shop fronts and businesses. And, and you even had businesses making their own plywood doors to be able to sort of open during the day and they've actually managed to sort of stencil or put posters on to say they're open, but they were, you know, they're, they're really then barricaded at night. And it, so it's, it was that, that simple manual. What, what we were doing was walking through the city and then, then the, the other thing about the plywood, the plywood becomes a palette or it became a canvas for the messages of you know, Black Lives Matter, of all of the sort of the, the, the activism around you know, the, the, the systemic racism issue that, that has actually that is, is palpable. And then also then they start to become an opportunity for street artists and other people to really create their own messages. So, so it was actually a beautiful thing. To walk through Soho at the moment is like a gallery. I mean, it, it transformed from being barricade protection to now messages and and. The opportunity to walk through those spaces and see all of those is really amazing thing in terms of how it affects you. We can you can just stop in front of a build a, a, a front wall with its messages and just read and stand there and be moved by the activism. Mm-hmm. It's funny that it's uh, in an ironic way that the storefronts that have replaced the artist studios have been restored to some of the the character and the heart of what Soho used to represent. So in a way, it's just it's sad that we'll see the removal of these and the return to the commercialism and the tourism. Obviously, it's th- it helps the city thrive, but it's, there's something, again, uh, very powerful about what's, what's on, the, on these boards as they, as they still stand there. Exactly. So what's your plan? What's your 
idea to do something with this for social impact, social good? So, so our little team, we meet every day, like everybody does when you're now Zooming. So we were, you know, I came back, we were discussing it as a team and said, look, you know, there's all this plywood, it's going to go to landfill probably. So what can we do with it? And about five years ago, there's a thing that started in San Francisco in 2005 called Parking Day. And it's one day of the year where um, cities offer their parking, you know, people can take over the parking bays within the city to create public space. And I think that's a, so it's a really interesting sort of proposition. So we did it in, we did it in Brisbane, in Australia, in our office there. We actually made out of plywood a whole platform working environment in a car parking space. And there's been, there's been similar examples, I think, on 13th Street at NYU every year. They, they do, they do a, um, a similar thing. And so it was us thinking through that, well, we actually got that plywood, we actually had it CNC cut and we were able to make furniture out of it, why the other, the other pressing need within the city is going to be now restaurants are going to be able to open into the outdoor space, into public space, because that's all they can do, is the public domain now is so important. So for over the summer, the public domain is actually, and the streets, again, are going to transform in their character because restaurants and cafes are going to be able to sort of open up into those spaces and the streets are actually going to be owned by people not by cars, which is a fantastic thing. Um, so what we looked at doing was how do we how do we upcycle the, the plywood, cut it, and be able to make stools and tables for restaurants so that we can actually they can actually we can reuse all of that that barricaded material and turn it into something positive to actually help the restaurants in the short term over the summer. And that sort of that out of that was born this idea that we called reply and reply is really, and we, we, we talk about it being repurposing a moment because I think, I think the, the sort of the whole, the whole racism issue and all that is actually a movement, not a moment, but we're, we're actually just repurposing this moment in time within the city, which is actually the, the transformation of barricade to now being open. And I think that's been a really interesting thing for our team to sort of jump in with a problem and, and try and solve it in it's a grassroots campaign. It's, it's like, you know, literally, you know, we've, we've trialled things quickly. We've had them cut. We've had prototypes done all within a week. We've managed to build a website. We've built a, a brand. We've built a, a sort of e-commerce platform. All the things that we would normally, normally would take us months in our, normal, in our day job. And it's been great to see the whole team. Everybody's taken on a role in a specific area and it really grown it. So, that's where we've got to, um, where we can't we can't register as a not for profit because that takes is a, a huge process. So we're actually a social venture, which is BVN as our the architectural practice is providing its time at a substantially lower cost. Where we're investing in this a fair amount, and then we've actually brought in other advisors. So we've got a business advisor that's come in to help us build the, the sort of business case, which is a guy called David Burgess. And then we've also had help from other friends, mainly out of Neuhaus, which has been interesting, which has been interesting how you tap into the contacts of the organisations. That So we were we, we, we used to be housed in Neuhaus for, for 18 months and many we've, you know, we've still got great relationships with a lot of the members um, and that's actually helped us in terms of you know, building website, brand, 
branding materials and those things to be able to get out there. So what happens once the the restaurants go back to in a not on street serving? What will happen to the furniture then? That's a good question. The furniture, I mean, because it's plywood, it, it, it does have a limited life in terms of you know, where we are. We're testing sealers. You know, we're doing a whole lot of different things. So the first batch that have come out are raw so that we can get things implemented quickly. And it's almost like a flat pack. It's almost like it comes out like an IKEA product, um, except IKEA spends a lot more time in its product development. So we've got a, a flat packed version that can actually that can be implemented immediately. And then we're looking at how you, you know, we've got a sealer process and things like that, which actually will give longevity. Uh, to the furniture and then ultimately we would like to be able to sell the furniture in the future and raise money for we've actually identified a really interesting group in Bedside called Children of Promise which look after they basically do great programs for kids of parents who are have been incarcerated so it's kind of an interest they, you know they're a they're an interesting program and someone we would like to support within within the realm of what we're doing so any surplus funds we want to put to them and also if we can then sell the furniture at the end of, of this process then we will actually divert funds um, to them. So let's just talk about the mechanics. So you've got, I mean I was cycling down Fifth Avenue yesterday and I was surprised that the razor wire and boards had come down from Saks uh, <laughs> and the, the guard dogs were gone but there's still quite a few stores with obviously plywood on them. So the plywood is already coming down there's a window of opportunity here. How are you managing to sort of galvanize interest and get to ensure that it doesn't get uh, ripped down and isn't just put into some recycling machine? We've been doing a lot of phone calls, um, a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, and a lot of contacts. So we actually did end up with, I think we were, we've already been given um, the majority of the plywood from the Rockefeller Center, which was great. So, you know, and that has also meant that, you know, and I'm talking about grassroots. Our team, including myself, have ended up in, in a U-Haul, U-Haul collecting plywood from the side of the street and then taking it to a, a storage facility we've got in Brooklyn. So we're getting it and we've actually, we know where we're sort of timetabling when people are actually taking their plywood down. So there's certain certain organisations. So on our, on our website, we actually have a sponsor page for plywood. So People have actually been responding with that and have actually, uh, they, they put in their details, we get in touch with them and we organise the pickup. And we don't, because it's furniture, we can't take all the plywood. We take the, the sheets that are actually, haven't been warped or haven't had too much water damage. So we're being, we have to be reasonably selective about, about what we take. But then that actually allows us then to manufacture really quickly and then it allows us to sort of have um, minimum waste too. So what we get is we we have a cutting pattern on each sheet of plywood that is a, that allows us to make you know a numerous number of stools and tables from a single piece of plywood. And how are you going to be able to sort of at scale produce if there is a demand for this? That's the meeting I've just left before I came here because that that's the thing that we're trying to do at the moment. So we are actually looking at a series like more than we 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 did we've worked with one CNC cutter at the moment in Brooklyn. And what we've done now is we're actually talking about three or four because we want to we, we do need to spread some load um, based on our expectation of demand. And our first our first two pilot restaurants, one is Saint Tropez in West Fourth Street um, in in the village, 
that will be there on Monday. And then Wayan, which is in um, Soho, which is, um, it, it will have their rest. It's an Indonesian, it's a great Indonesian restaurant. They will have theirs on Wednesday. So we have two, two prototypes. Our first two prototypes are up and running um, next week, this week. We should connect you with a previous guest, Robert Marchetti, who uh, runs uh, Grand Tivoli. Yes, well, that would be great. I think what we, you know, we're actually you know, really in terms of this is the start of our uh, start of our talking about it to to the press and to you know, putting out a press release and those sort of things. So we start to, to garner support because we had to we had a week we had to actually make sure the product worked. Um, we've done you know, where we get stress testing of of you know when you're putting people on a on a, on a seat. We've actually got to make it so strong and it, it, it lasts. So, you know, we've been doing those sorts of things to get the, the process in place and to get the business model in place so that we can actually take out any friction out of delivery um, and, and be able to scale as quickly as possible. Okay. And in terms of the, because there's obviously, the, like you say, the plywood that's been water damaged, that's been warped. How important is it that you have some of the graffiti and the art on there? The graffiti and the art is fantastic, and, and I think yeah, you know, there is there are multiple conflicting groups in terms of the graffiti and the art. Some people, there's, there's some of it was actually sponsored by certain groups. So I see, I mean, Northwell Health actually sponsored um, quite a few artists to go out. So we've been working with a few artist collectives who were actually involved in in the production of, of the works, and then. What we're also we've been doing is is on our walks is actually literally talking to to the, the street artists themselves at the moment and getting their details because the idea is that we we what we might where we're trying to do is put street artists also in touch with with some of the building owners so that they can actually now do do more street art and then we will collect it when they're ready to take it down. So so what we're trying to do is is create a pool of artists as well that we've met in the street and they so they actually end up with more work and then we end up using upcycling the, the, the product. But I think we've got to be also, we're trying to be deferential or referential to some of some of the works are, are too good to cut up like into furniture and, you know, we won't be doing that. We're, we're really taking the tagging and the, the, the sort of um, some of the, sort of city messaging, smaller messaging that's actually happening there. But there's some, I mean, there are some magnificent works that shouldn't actually be cut up into furniture. I mean, obviously the boards that are up around Union Square, just on the east side, I mean, they're obviously tremendous and these will have, should be of some form of historical significance in these times. But yeah, I mean, there's some amazing pieces that are down in uh, Tribeca and Soho, definitely. In, in, yeah, there are, there are some great pieces that I think will be safe. My friend Graham McIndoe is a photographer has been documenting everything for the last uh, for the last few weeks as well. He's got some wonderful ones. But also when we were out, we went out a couple of Fridays ago to just to capture a lot of the stuff in Soho and around Midtown area. And we bumped into this guy. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Can you see it? Be Mighty. Oh, yes. Yes, so, yes. So he's an activist from working around the world, but he now goes around with this little machine that he puts quotes around the buildings. So the one he's been doing recently is a Martin Luther King one. There's the Martin Luther King one, and there's also a Gandhi one. There's a Mahatma Gandhi one. There's two. It's darkness cannot drive out. Uh, darkness cannot 
drive out darkness. Only light can drive can do that. And then that's the Martin Luther King one. And the Gandhi one. The machine mark. How does he he projects them or, or he sprays no, them? Or like I I saw him and I we I went, Can you explain what you're doing? And he came up and we had a chat. So I said we'd get him on the podcast, interview him about it. He's developed it from something else. It's a it's a it's a hack. And it's just he just goes like this and it just creates it. Um You can see it's almost like a dymo. Like yeah. it's like what you used to have, you know, the dymo that the, yeah. But it literally prints right along, and and they are those messaging ones are fantastic. What's it called? Be uh, be mighty. Be mighty. Be mighty. Yeah. And uh, those ones, then they're everywhere. They are literally from from basically all around um, sort of Union Square, and then down through through Soho, and they're terrific. You're literally walking along, and you just see people. Everyone's just stopping and reading and 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 being involved. You know, being engaged in. What, what is actually happening, which is terrific. It's interesting. How do you think the this, I've had so many conversations with people talking about the new normal and, uh, and other people saying, oh, it's all going to go back to normal. It will just be the same. These times will pass. I don't think they will. I think we are in a, in a pivotal seismic moment of change. What, what's your sense of just uh, being an Australian in New York for obviously some time, but also just uh, the your sense of how the city as a as an environment will change and evolve. So just from your own personal perspective, but also from the perspective as an architect, how you'll start have to rethink the way you what you design and what you build. Well I think I mean it's interesting because I've been doing all sorts of other parallel, you know, I, it's still a day job at the moment too, which is actually working with our clients. And 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 a lot of work that we've been doing has been with with organizations looking at new workplaces and, and those sort of fit out projects. And, and I think if you start to look at commercial real estate, I mean, commercial real estate, I think is actually going to be fundamentally changed in terms of what people are actually, you know, like this, this global working from home experiment has been incredibly successful in a lot of ways. I mean, there, there are huge social issues. There are, there are lots of interface issues. There's a lot of, Lot of other, there's a lot of problems, but people have actually had to do things that they would not have. People have actually had to upskill. You know, Luddites, old people like me, have had to upskill and, and become relevant, and, and and that's actually been really interesting about how agile humans are. You know, we actually, you know, we we as a planet have actually dealt with a lot in this situation, and what. We've actually also learned a lot. And I think that's, for me, the fundamental thing at the moment has been, it's almost been the last three months of learning, learning and relearning and just being open to learning because, you know, learning, learning about, you know, how to, how to change your life and how to have contact with people in a different way and, and the importance of contact. But then also then the whole, the whole race issue and all of those things, especially, you know, for me as a, an out, a, a sort of you know, white Australian who's come into this, you know, into this world and, and my education, you know, to understand what has happened. And, you know, Australia has its, absolutely has its own issues in terms of, of um, Indigenous people and how we've treated them. And that, that's been interesting that, you know, the sort of I think the, the, the George Floyd moment has actually, you know, it's tipped 
issues off in every country or many different countries around the world that, that actually, you know, systemic stuff that actually just needs to be dealt with and needs to be at least exposed and, and you know, and then we all have to be involved in, in the solution in some way. So I think that's kind of interesting. So what I'm really seeing in, in, the, in the commercial building is the idea that, you know, with organisations where, you know, your workforce doesn't actually now need to come to the office, it starts to question a whole lot of the original ideas we've always had about what a workplace is and that you actually bring everybody to one place. So, you know, the model that we're really, really sort of seeing is this idea that, you know, the workplace or the office is actually office's clubhouse. It's something different. Every survey, and then, I mean, how many million surveys we've all seen over this period of time tells you that people, you know, the four things that people want to do back in the office is collaborate, you know, meet clients, have social interaction, but it actually doesn't say people want to go to the office. I think that's a... A big shift in, you know, if we don't, this, we've got to actually take this moment and turn it into something really different. And, and, and you know, we're, you know, in terms, and then also looking at the planet, the impact on the planet is that, you know, that we've managed to do all of this so fast. Why aren't we doing the same? You know, we need to do the same thing now for the environment with the same level of activism. The one thing I was listening on CNBC this morning was the, the surprising numbers in, in terms of where car sales have and secondhand car sales have surged because people don't trust public transport. And all the things you suddenly expect to bounce back haven't bounced back, but the things that you thought were on trend to move towards shared vehicles, the driverless cars, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So the, just these, the shift in the trends, it seems to be going back to more traditional forms of transport. So are we going to see uh, a reimagining of how people come into the city en masse to, into workspaces, maybe later in the day, changing the way we think about parking spaces, how congestions will have to be treated? There might be a reimagining of how we handle the, the way that even just if people are staying at home during the day to, to work and then coming in later in the day, what will happen to the way that people order food and how local communities will evolve to serve people when there's the change in demand. You know, all these things will have to be reimagined. What will happen to the Starbucks and the, and the Pretz that normally expect the morning rush and that just doesn't happen anymore? These things must be going through your mind as, a, as architects. They are. They are. They are. And I think, I mean, you know, the, the two things that let you down are public transport in terms of the safety and then, you know, when you get into buildings, it's elevators. So there's sort of two pinch points in a way in, in terms of that. But I, so I, that's why I think that the idea that, that people won't be coming in, you know, I mean, in a way, you won't come in as much. You won't, you won't be doing the community. And, and I think the importance of local communities and local, local actually becomes a sort of far, a local and community, I think, has sort of becomes far more important in, the, in that process. And the reality is that we also now know we can work anywhere. You know, like I've been, I'm working on things in Australia. I've got things here. I've got things in Canada. And I used to travel all the time. And I actually don't need to do that. And that's, that's I think, a fundamental. We, we sort of have institutionalised this, this idea of, of, of commercial and business travel that I think now 
you can't face to face is still important, and 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 there. You know, but we're actually going to be now more discerning about when we actually need to do that, and when you actually need to bring people together. So I think that that's you know rather. I mean, that, the, the, the car search thing is a bit sad at, at some level because again, environmentally, you know. But but then on the other hand, maybe you won't be using it as much because you won't be actually driving into the city. So so. That's we've got to look at both sides, but I do think it's going to be a really, you know, in some ways you could almost say we're at peak office in in the cities. Is that you actually don't need to build more buildings necessarily. We actually now just need to actually look at how we refurbish, reconfigure. The interesting thing is the tops of buildings used to be the premium real real estate. Now what we're finding with our clients, especially in one project we're doing in Montreal, is that the mezzanine areas and the lower ground floors that can be accessed by stairs suddenly have a value that, that, that they didn't have before. That's amazing. What do you think will happen to if people are working from home more? And let's face it, in a city like New York, um, space is a premium. How we reimagine people's home spaces as workspaces and the role that organisations have to take to invest in people's homes as a extension of the workspace? So I was sent something yesterday. Switzerland have just had their first test case and that, that they're actually, the employers actually have to pay a proportion of people's rent if they're actually going to work from home. So that in itself is a huge milestone. And I, be, I believe Germany is moving towards that as well. So our own, our own personal spaces actually become more important. And I think for a lot of us living in New York, we're living in small apartments. We weren't, you, you didn't spend that much time in them. So I think, you know, our homes are actually becoming more important. And, you know, the, the idea, especially for people, you know, if you think about, you know, a lot of people didn't, didn't think that their children would be home from school and that they would actually all be working there and you'd, somehow you would try and make all of this function. So I think there's, a, there's an interesting an interesting shift, I think, to actually people starting to look at their own their own personal space and what does that mean to them, and do they need to be in the city? Although, you know, I still think you know, there's still something really interesting about living in the inner city for myself, which I love in terms of that that richness of being able to walk out. But you know, the idea of community again becomes really important wherever you are. I have I think- a question on that note. I would love to ask you as an architect, because I mean, as an architect, you sort of as in a social environment, so to speak, because you create spaces for people. And especially what you do, you create office spaces in specific, right? So don't you think, when I hear this kind of conversation about working from home and no office space needed, I, of course, I love the idea because I'm a homie and I love the idea. But in general, I just feel like, what is that going to mean for us as humans? Are we going to become very isolated individuals who don't need anyone else anymore? Like, I really have a big fear that that is where it's going because we're so self-sufficient. We don't need anyone else. And this goes on and on and on for months and years that obviously changes our behavior as humans and in a society. And I am really afraid that that's where eventually it's going to go. And I personally, the way I am, I do not like that because I'm a social person. So how do you, how do you see that on a, like you foresee, yes, working from home, but then maybe one day a week we meet or like is there a, you foresee a space where people still can get together when they work for a company? 
that's my concern. The social isolation is what what really concerns me too much. It's interesting because as, as, I mean, I've I've heard it coined by somebody as, you know, the introvert's revenge in a way because, you know, we've created a lot of work environments that are actually have, you know, in terms of sort of group think, collaboration, all of that sort of stuff has actually been really about an extroverted work environment, truly. And a lot of people, and some, you know, there is a group of people who are disenfranchised by that. I think we've flipped to the opposite side, which is actually, you know, the, there are, you know I've, I've spoken to quite a few introverts who are actually really quite happy, very happy in, in this new world. I think the, what's really interesting now, though, is the, cat, the part that I find interesting is, is the public domain, like our outdoor space and public domain is actually the place like public parks, um, all of the, you know, our, our outdoor spaces, they're actually the places now where people meet. They're not meeting in a building. So I think that's actually the, there's a really interesting thing about now just really focusing in our cities, in our cities and, and actually you know, in, in any sort of urban environments is that the, the importance of the public domain and how do we activate the public domain and let people come together um, in that space. It's fine in summertime in New York, but that's not going to be good in wintertime. Let's see, what about January, February, March? <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> That was me with an Australian sensitivity because, I, you know, reality is of, of different climates. But, yes, I think that but this is the notion around buildings as clubhouse or, or the, that there are places where people will come together and they're going to be new places. I think there's new, there's new models to develop around, around that. But, but I do think we do have, right, going to be, there's a lot of social issues that we're going to have to deal with through this process. And, and you know, we're not... Just when a you know a vaccine isn't going to be the panacea, you know, in the end, and I think there's this, you know, the, the other thing you think is actually trust, is people have to be able to trust the spaces they're going to, and trust the people in a way that they're meeting as well. So, you know, I, I heard a thing yesterday about, you know, it's not actually about us; it's actually about us working together because the, my actions impact a group, a larger group of people, especially in the COVID world. Is that you know. I wear a mask because it actually protects others, not because I'm protecting myself. So there's a, I think that's actually a really interesting shift in society in terms of what we've got to look at. But I think that it's actually going to call for new spaces and, and new ideas around how we meet. What do you think will happen to things like, for example, MoMA or the Met? Will we go to 24-hour opening where it will be time-based 50% capacity, so you'll have the the benefit of walking through not crowded museums and art galleries, that type of thing. Will you go to 25% capacity screenings of movies or will this just all go away and it change? I don't know the answer to that. And I think that, you know, the idea that we have hours of operation, I mean, you know, hours of operation are actually the easiest thing with loads, peak loads. I mean, there was in a, in a post-earthquake in, in Christchurch in New Zealand, they actually, there were two schools were using the one in Zealand and they just had different programs, different timetables. So you could have two whole two whole communities could use the same facility um, over a longer time frame, which in itself is actually an incredibly good use of space in terms of environmentally. Um, but then, you know, now we've also got this whole 
the cleaning program and, and the protocols around distancing and those sort of things. So I think that um, I think a lot of some of those will be institutionalized. I think some of those will will slide a bit. But I mean, the idea of going to the Met at, at eleven o'clock would be fantastic. Yeah, I agree. It would be wonderful to go to the to the Whitney or to the MoMA like. After dinner, wouldn't it be beautiful? So let's yeah. go see this show. There's no one there. I mean, fantastic. I mean, it's obviously going to change the economics, though, for each of those because you know you've got staffing and you've got. But if you've got half the load of people, then then I imagine that 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 comes into it as well. So there's an interesting. I think what this is doing is actually just making everybody rethink, just question the way that we've done things. I'm surprised that there are. And maybe the, these conversations are being had, but as these buildings and this commercial real estate opens up, surely there's an opportunity for uh, more purposeful and visionary organisations to say, let's use this space to address homelessness and to create corporate homeless facilities to retrain people, to give them opportunity, to feed them. The, the, this, is a, this is a window to really address the, the systemic issue. And I think that's where, you know, it, whether it be corporate law firms or um, big technology companies, this is an opportunity for someone to build their reputation, their brand and impact social purpose at a, at a radical level. And I think it, it's happening sporadically in different, in different areas. So um, we had a great conversation with Pioneer Works in, in, in Red Hook as an interesting organisation, arts-based arts-based organisation with with exhibition, and they support their artists. But they're actually been supporting all of the local restaurants in Red Hook over the last three months. So there's, you know, I think there are, and you know, there are corporate, there are there are windows of of what where that's happening in corporates. But I do think one of the big things the city is having an issue with too is that, you know, the the, the sort of homeless shelters were actually based on density. You know, you actually need a lot of people in them. And I, I've noticed even a hotel behind me only in the last, it was actually housed at the army while the army were here during the sort of the peak of the COVID response in New York. It's actually now been turned into a place for homeless. So the hotel is actually being used by the city. So the city is actually seem to be actively looking at solutions with partners to solve some of this. But it's not, that's not, that's not long-term, that's short-term. But you see, like the city used the, co- the, the Javits Centre for uh, like a makeshift hospital, which Cuomo did an incredible job. Like he, he put it up, he put that thing together, I mean, I don't know, in three days or something crazy, right? And it was up and running and everything. And, and I'm like thinking, well, you can do something like that using, a, it's, a private, it's a private space, the COVID centre, right? The Javits Centre. So why can we not do something, ask maybe a little bit longer, but there's other, there's so many empty buildings and stuff that the city could just take on and say, you know, I'm going to put like a few hundred homeless people in these buildings while it's not being used by anyone. So doing things, it's just the willingness, you know. I think the city's biggest challenge also is their budget. I think because the city has probably been, you know, like, like anyone, like the, all of it, you know, so it's, it's finding the partnership models and finding the sponsorship models that actually help this, which you know, that's actually been an interesting thing for us too. Even in, in our little thing with Reply is we can support it to a level, but we still need 
We still need some sponsorship. We still need you know, mechanisms for people to be able to sort of just put, assist us to be able to sort of do the, the, the work. So I think that we've got to be, we've got to look a bit broader and, and sort of look at what is actually happening around us and where we can, you know, either offer time, resources or, or, or money into the into initiatives that are actually trying to solve problems. And, and the other thing is the Javits Centre, I think, showed you really how fast we can actually get stuff done. Exactly, exactly. But you know what it also tells you? That you need a leader who can implement that. So it goes all back to a sort of a political situation that you need someone that takes initiative and says, this is the plan, we're going to do it and do it. And we, I think the one, the one of the biggest problems is that we're lacking this kind of leadership. And we all know that we're lacking this kind of leadership, but yeah. Okay, well, well on that, let's wrap it up. And if people want to either um, support you, find out more about you, where do they find you? Where do they follow you on social? Yeah, sure. Um, we've, we've got a website, which is reply, R-E-ply, P-L-Y.org. And we also have an Instagram site, which is reply, R-E-P-L-Y, N-Y-C. Um, either of those two places, they'll get in touch with us. And, and we have in the website, we have a series of pages, one for sponsorship, one for restaurants that are actually interested in, in furniture, and one that actually is if you've got plywood. We may even start a volunteer one soon um, in terms of logistics. Great. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, sitting out on some of these plywood tables and chairs. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Excellent. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKayley and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.